the progression that we've gone on has started off at the point of vulnerability, which had initially seemed to be an open, brutal, and genuinely self-honest capability to express who I am and even some of the darker stuff in my life. Contrasted, we then progressed to how the Rambam describes a person of elevated stature, a wise man should behave, and there there seemed to be a glaring contradiction. When it came to confessing one's sins, coming to terms with stuff that I've done, said the Rambam, you have to have the courage to proclaim in the public eye the details of what you've done wrong. And yet when it comes to the way that the Chochem should conduct himself, the Rambam takes an approach of covering over some of the negative stuff. And then he rates what the negative stuff is, and surprisingly for us, we've been perhaps brought up in a very different culture where this is slowly but surely going out of fashion. He goes into great depth into the way that a chacham, a wise man, should eat. And he goes through what we said, at least 10 parameters of how that eating should take place in terms of choice of food. It should be the type of decision that you make when you decide what you eat. shouldn't be the point of the food that meets the eye and tickles the taste bud. Nay, you should think about the nutritional component. What is this food going to do for my body? Criterion number one. Then you think about the portions. Shouldn't overeat. Then you think about the way that you relate to the pursuit of food. Should you run after it or should you be restrained in terms of Chasing food, restraint. And then he says, when you behave that way towards food, it allows you to live a different kind of philosophy. When a person is prone to be drawn after restaurants as his primary mode of entertainment, it's almost as if he's shifting the nature of his eating experience from being one of a means to being one of an end's. And therefore, it must mean, even though he may not articulate it, that his philosophy of life is eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. Meaning, he puts the physical experience at the top of his hierarchy of importance, recognizing that if I want to get pleasure in this world, it's going to come through my taste buds and through my tummy. Says the Rambam, we have a more elevated vision for you, my friend. You can transcend. Food can act as the energy that propels you to new spiritual understanding. And if you become subdued, immersed, and seduced by the sushi, bombarded by the burger, and sucked in by the steak, you're going to be in trouble, matey, because you may land up in the quagmire of quelamari. So, take it, balance. Then the Rambam goes on and he says that moderation, when you're thinking about the selection of food, stick to one or two kinds of dishes. Don't go overboard. You don't need 15 types of selection. Again, teaching us the, the way of interacting with the physical world. And food really becomes a... Uh, training ground for all other kinds of interaction with the physical world. Yes, we embrace it. Eat. Don't fast. But when you eat, use your eating as a platform for spiritual growth. Only eat as much as you need. Don't overeat. 
And can you understand how that struggle is almost manifest? Because in all those areas, we start to wrestle with the animal within. We start to battle with the beast. And we start to struggle with the... Help me out. Help me out. Struggle with the... No, man. It has to be start with an S. The serpent. Serpent. Thank you. So that's... that's, that's it's hard, right? It's hard. When I eat, what comes to mind first or what comes to tummy first? Food. Eat. Now. Devour. How should I eat it? If it tastes good, eat lot. If it doesn't taste good, avoid. What about nutrition? I don't care about nutrition. And then by actually interacting with food in a new way, slowly but surely, incrementally getting myself to do it, I start to refine, sculpt myself into being slightly above the animalistic, transcendent, recognizable, distinct. I'm not just going to be one of the herd in a galloping stampede of life. I'm going to, going to step back, restrain, think, interact, negotiate, mitigate, and be present in my very own life and the way that I engage in food. And then he goes on to say, the place to eat is in your home, on your table. Don't even eat. If you're at home, don't eat walking around. Sit down. Be present with your food. And then he says something which for us is a shocker. Don't go to restaurants. Don't eat in a public place. And the reason he says is, why would you degrade yourself by doing that? And that gives me a shock to my system because I'm thinking to myself, hey, what's degrading about eating? Everyone I know does it. I haven't met a single human being alive that doesn't eat. There was apparently a man in India that did say that he photosynthesized. And he just went years, they say, without eating. But I'm dubious. I strongly suspect there may have been someone slipping in the snack every now and then. I just don't think the sun would have done it for a human body. So that was a big shocker. But then we understand that something the Rambam is trying to give over. And I think this may be, in a way, I believe, an initial starting point to resolve the difficulty and the paradox of the two kinds of Rambams, the one about open description of what's gone wrong with me and the other one of guarding over. And he says, eating in public eye is degrading. Why is it degrading? So we all agree that toileting in the public eye is degrading. Why is it degrading? Everyone I know, everyone I know, haven't yet met a person who doesn't go to the toilet. No one, if not a single human being. Pharaoh pretended not to, and that's how Moshe Rabboni Moses would always, by mistake on purpose, bump into him as he was doing his ablutions. He said, hello, hi mate. And of course he's caught, literally, with his pants down. So, no one, it's part of the way that the body works. Why would we Why would we make stalls? Why don't we just like, you know, when you need to go? Why would you bother? I mean, obviously, for sanitary reasons, you need to have a place which has got flowing water. But why, why the necessity for privacy? Just have a, you know, save time, do some business meetings while on the bog. Lama law. Why not? You see that there's an intuitive awareness that we may have, and this could be 
culturally developed and attuned, for sure, in the Jewish spiritual system, toileting is looked upon as something which is done in absolute privacy. It's not something you should bandy about, and you should even hide it from other people, which is a little bit consistent with what the Rambam is saying, because the understanding is as follows. I want to bring my best game. I want to show the best of me. And there are two parts to me. There is my body that I have to feed and nourish and take care of its needs, like my horse. I have to take care of my horse. And then there's myself, my inner worth, my wealth, the, my wealth of being, my transcendent, meaning-searching, powerful, loving, caring, authentic, integrity, that grandeur of being that transcends everything which is f- physical and mundane. And therefore, when I want to present myself and engage in my own vision of my identity, where do I want to be? In the toilet or in a state of spiritual elevation. And therefore, even though it's a necessity as a human being, but it's not something that I want to accentuate and pronounce, I want to almost declare that that part of myself is not me. That's my machine. There was a great man called Reb Yeruchim Levavitz. He was a teacher of my teacher's teacher. The Rebbe, of my Rebbe's Rebbe. And Reb Yeruchim Levavitz was the mashgiach in a yeshiva. He was a spiritual dean the spiritual mentor in a yeshiva called Mir that was in a small little town in Poland. And my Rebbe's Rebbe, my teacher's teacher, his name was Rebbe Shlomo Valder, he went to that yeshiva before the war. And there he met a young man, 28, 29, and they met as Ravolbi was a brand new student in this yeshiva. And this man looked across to Ravolbi, who was then in his early 20s, and he said, how old are you? And Revolve said, I can't remember what he said, 22, 21. He looked at this person and he said, and how old are you? Thinking this is obviously the protocol. And the man replied, I am three years old. He didn't look like a three-year-old. He didn't talk like a three-year-old. How could he be a three-year-old? <coughs> so Revolve said, explain your words, to which he replied. Three years ago, I met Rabbi Ruchim. He wasn't a person that educated. He revived the dead inside of me. I feel like that's when I was born. A great man. A great, great man whose teachings I feel that I'm nourishing on through this direct line of transmission. People said about Rabbi Ruchim that when he ate, it didn't look like he was eating. It looked like he was feeding his body. I don't know what that looks like. But I imagine that his sense of being was so pronounced that there was a distinction between the need for the body that he drives to be fueled. So he has to eat. But there was such a conscious distinction between my body, my equipment that I use to impress and to impact in the world, and my essential self, that it wasn't him and eating wasn't if his identity was linked into the eating process. That's powerful. So in understanding this idea of covering over our negativity and how that relates to vulnerability, I would like to, after these weeks of delving into it, suggest a possible approach. I believe that vulnerability is extremely effective when it's utilized to express the grandeur of who we are. I do not believe there's value in a person 
openly declaring all the dark stuff inside of himself for no higher purpose. But when he fails and he's wronged someone and he's understood the impact of his actions, by him declaring that in the public eye, he's not revealing his loneliness, he's accentuating his incredible power of elevation. Because if I've got the guts to be honest enough to say I did something wrong and I'm not scared to say that in front of a whole room of people and I'm never going to do that again, that shows the greatest thing about the human condition, the power to change. And therefore that kind of vulnerability is admirable even though it describes the dark struggle of being which is our lot we do struggle. And yes, we are afflicted with multiple detrimental, tough stuff and murky guck that we have to deal with. That's the nature of our condition. That's not bad. That's not bad. When we utilize it, utilize it as a struggle for elevation. And therefore, if I'm open enough to say, listen, I had a struggle. Or I did something wrong. And I thought about it. And I've moved away from it. And I'm not going there again. That's heroic. That is heroic. I'll give you an example. I was once called in by a student to attend an AA meeting. Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. It was his first year anniversary of being clean. And he wanted me to come and be there when he received his medal for a sober year. And for me, it was one of the most inspiring sessions of that I've ever been to. Because there were people, he started off by saying how hard it was and how much he struggled for that year to keep himself clean. And that was admirable. That was admirable. But you think about it. But is that admirable? What do you do? I mean, why don't we just critique, critique him? I mean, why do, you, why do you feel the need to escape through alcoholism in the first place? But that's not what came out. It came out the heroic struggle to overcome an extremely powerful force within. That when we triumph, triumph over the negative drives that we have, that's heroic. And then there was someone that spoke after him and they introduced themselves. I don't know what her name was. They was Marianne. I'm an alcoholic. And I've been clean. I think she said, I can't remember now. It could have been eight or nine years. And she said, the first year was easy for me. Then it got really hard. And I was dumbstruck. I said, look at that spirit to struggle with a powerful force year after year. Heroic. But isn't it degrading? Isn't it low? No, no, it's heroic. Because the lowness is the pull. The heroism is the capacity to overcome it. And therefore, when I'm struggling with something and I've been able to deal with that struggle, certainly if I've been able to overcome it, Revealing that to others is a display of my greatness, not of my degraded being. And that's how we can reconcile these two rambams. We always have to elevate self. We always have to show up with the top side of the human condition and not the animal. Sometimes they will manifest in a refined kind of behavior where we don't even eat openly because you want to we don't want to show off the fact that we have this mortal component to our being. Other times, it will be displaying the incredible power of animalism, yet 
the incredible capacity that we have to overcome it. And that balance between brokering the animal and the godly self is our struggle. And the more we affirm our identity within the divine and the spiritual, the more we're able to live a life which is transcendent. And in doing so, we can actually elevate the most mundane of actions into eternity. The, for, for the 20 minutes before I came here, you may not know where I was, but I'll be vulnerable as to my location. Just down the stairs, there's a gym. I was there, pumping iron. And I want you to say when I say those words, like a beast. And then I think to myself, hmm. Is that bringing my best self to the show? I want to go and I want to pump it iron and I want to look at myself in the mirror and go, Hurrah! Hurrah! However, when I look at myself in the mirror, I kind of go, <laughs> Like, I look like the before picture, you know, like in all these things, like there's the before and after, the guy before training, after training. I look at myself in the mirror, I'm the perfect before. I'm the perfect before. So... On the one hand, whoa, bro, that's so, so animalistic, sitting there with your bench press going, oh, 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 what are you, Mr. Bama? But then I think, why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Well, the truth is because I want to be ripped. <laughs> but there's another part of me, there's another part of me that I'm, str- yeah, I'm struggling with that part. There's another part of me that's just simply the fact is that I'm now 53 years old and the reality of aging is that as you get older your muscles turn to fat and in terms of the aging process that's not a good idea because it means as you get older you get weaker if you get weaker you lose strength and mobility and you can't do the things that you need to do for example like hagba <laughs> how are you going to lift that big safer terror if your biceps are kind of gone to to soap so <laughs> There's a part of me that recognizes that in order for me to keep operating, you know you take your car for a service, otherwise <clears throat> over the course of the time, things kind of get clogged up. So you've got to service your body. You've got to service your body. You have to make sure that it's in tip-top condition, otherwise it can't, can't move you. The problem is when, that, when, when the identity becomes enmeshed and starting off trying to just get a functional body and having the strength to perform elevated tasks, I become seduced by the ripples of my flesh as I gaze lovingly upon the slowly emerging six-pack. Very slowly emerging six-pack. So there you go. I told you something vulnerable, but it's not, it's not degrading because there's a point to which it's elevating. It, yeah, it's just responsibility. It's like the Borealum gave me a body. I've got to take care of it. I have a responsibility. It's mine. Okay. Yes, Daniel. I mean, there's some thoughts and some crimes, perhaps, that, you know, despite the fact that you changed, that you really, um, you did them maybe a year ago or two years ago, you really have changed, like you become better. Right. Some, it, it's, is it really always an elevating experience? Well, give, give me an example of one of the ones you've done recently. Um, Sorry. I, okay. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Then, then it's, if it doesn't fit into my song, I don't really want to give it. So let's, 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 let's do it like this. Let's, 
you know, there, there's some things that people do, which, are, which, are, which again, there's a spectrum, right? Sometimes people do horrific things. So the question is like, okay, what happens if the person does something really horrific? I mean, murder. I mean, he really, he really regrets it. And he really has absolute, constant, total, immeasurable grief over the incredibly bad thing he did. Can he do chiva? Can he, can, can, he, can he work with that or not? What do you think? I mean, personally, he can do chiva. Right. But when it comes to you know, telling everyone about it, that act of vulnerability, um, I suppose the people will think whatever they think, but in his actions, is he still elevating himself? He's, he's really owning what he did. And not doing that, you can understand. I mean, how many Khalila, it's terrible, but how many perpetrators are there that aren't willing to acknowledge their their ruin and destruction that they've reaped and that they've that they've caused? So, so is it great what he did? No. Is it absolutely? And, and also, there's there's another fascinating thing. Should there be justice for what he's done? Absolutely, completely unrelated. Meaning, if he's done a crime, does he need to be punished? 100%. But does that mean that he shouldn't openly admit and move away from it and declare his distance and say, I wish I never would have done that also? So it's almost as if the parameters of this kind of vulnerability and this kind of acknowledgement, this kind of courage is independent of, but there is a system of law that you have to comply to and there will be consequences. You can't get rid of the consequences. Brad? If it's true that we should... Uh, keep the fact that we go to the bathroom part of other individuals. Yeah. I don't problem? know where this is going, but I'm worried. Is there a problem with uh, you know coming out of the bathroom and then reciting Ashegatsa while there's other people around? You tell me. What do you think? In other words, you go to the bathroom, and there's a specific piece of spiritual equipment that's been designed for you to appreciate the magnificent working of your finely tuned physiology, which is unfathomable. The fact that you can go around eating and drinking, and then your body has got this incredibly sophisticated way of sorting bad from good, giving you the nutrients, getting rid of the waste products, and you sit after experiencing that process and acknowledge the source to this incredible, well-engineered body, is that degrading? I'm not saying don't acknowledge the source. I'm saying uh-huh. should, we just, like, keep, should we just matter the bracha and the breath if there's other people around? Because like, it's an amazing process, but we're still not going um, to like, tell people about this amazing process. Well, when, you, when you're doing that, you accentuating your relationship to the process. The fact that it's happened in the past, I don't think is degrading. The fact that you can utilize it as a springboard for spiritual growth, I think is an accentuation of your greatness, not a degradation of your animal self. In other words, no one denies that we do have a body. The point is, what are you trying to present to the world around? Are you trying to present your higher self or your lower self? Yeah, but if I say actually that's, uh, that's present, that there's an implication there that I've just done Correct, that. correct. It really does imply that. Okay, so good. Uh, a last question from Daniel Lewis. Meaning not a last question from the world, but a last question from him particularly. Joking. Oh, that's sneaky. Um, so the first one is... Um, <laughs> first one is... Does that mean to say that we must relinquish or give up our 
um, uh, when it comes to food, our enjoyment, or not enjoyment, but we must give up any, any search of, of tasty food. So whatever the issue gives us, you know, if it meets basic nutrition, um, we really should just go like, no Should we give up our, our, our basic need for tasty food? Should I eat foods that I like or not like? It seems so sad that it, and it seems just like we're giving For you, it seems very sad. It seems giving up a joy. Right. Right. So, so let's think about that. Let's think about that. Let's think about the fact that there's no accidents in the world. And the world is a perfectly orchestrated system which is engineered to, to sink. So now, if there was a spiritual design which wanted us to eat for nutrition alone, why would there be taste in food? We just need to, like, I suppose, I suppose we could just recharge ourselves through photosynthesis if need be. There must be something much deeper about the process of eating, the process of taste, the tongue, and it could be that actually through the taste of foods, it's an access to a high spiritual level. For example, interesting Hebrew word, tam, which means taste in English. But this is the point. That word also means reason. So I think to myself, that's odd. Why would there be a relationship between taste and reason? What has taste got to do with reason? But if I think a drop deeper, I recognize that we can eat food which, which is tasteless. And then all we're doing is we're going through a process which has no real connection to me. It's extremely robotic. But when there's a taste to the food... I'm engaged in the moment. The taste draws me in and creates a connection between me and the food. And arguably, and arguably, having tasty food is going to assist us in healthy nutrition and sustained um, health because we really aren't attracted to foods which don't taste well. It's really it's a struggle. But how does it respond to my spiritual life? Well, let's think about this. What is a reason? A reason makes what I'm doing, connective, tasty. So if I have no idea what I'm doing, it's like eating food without taste. So the Hebrew word illuminates to me, perhaps, one of the conceptualizations I can extract from the process of eating. Something which I eat and it's tasteless, I'm doing it just because I need to get the food in my body. Not a pleasant experience. It doesn't connect to me. I'm not drawn towards it. I'm probably not going to want to go there again. Something which I can taste, I feel connected to. And then I think to myself, wow, it must mean that in my life, the things that I go through, I want to make sure that they have a taste. And then I start to think in some kind of sensory transcendence where I take the sense of taste and I use it as a yardstick to measure my experiences of relationships, of engagements, of career. How tasty is my career? Is it bitter? Is it sweet? And what kind of texture does it have? Is it the kind of thing that I want to gulp down every day? Or is it the kind of thing I'd rather vomit up? And when you recognize the power of taste, so then you think, wow, okay, that's, that's a pretty powerful lesson. Now I know I need taste in my food because it gives me access to an entire realm of understanding. As an example. Why it's important. But it's secondary to the problem. It depends what you're using for it, what you're using it for. When you use the taste as a, as, as a, also as a springboard for transcendence, so then taste becomes crucial, not incidental. So, for example, say I would like to capture a moment between you and I. If I serve you three-day-old bread, so the food will detract from our connection. If I serve you, assuming that both of us are enjoy this, 
medium rare sirloin steak. You can almost see that on the grill right now as your mouth waters, as you think about putting that succulent tender meat into your mouth and as you feel the taste almost melt. So when I offer you that and then we use that point of pleasurable connection to cement <coughs> our relationship and it creates an atmosphere, an environment, so then I've used this powerful ingredient of eating as a point of elevation. As what we, that's what we do as Jews every Shabbat. We utilize the range of foods to celebrate, almost as if to say, this is a tasty day. And that has an incredible impact on our spiritual growth. And, uh, my second question was... Sorry, uh, I think this may be your fourth and it's definitely <laughs> your last. Go on. If, um, if the Rambam says that eating in public is degrading but you can eat at your table, mm. in front of a family or in front of a whole... Well, it doesn't. He says you should avoid eating even at your table when there's loads of people around. So you should eat basically... The ideal scenario is eating by yourself at your table. It seems that way. Okay, because I thought that, you know, if, if you were able to eat... Right, right, right. Right, no, no, you thought wrong. It's okay. I also thought wrong sometimes. I once thought wrong. It was the act of eating itself that was great. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 that's good, excellent. <coughs> yeah. Okay, so, oh, so when it comes to a Sudas mitzvah, meaning an, uh, where the actual meal itself is is like designated for a higher purpose, so then then it becomes the act itself becomes elevated in the process because you you're using the food as a as almost as a as a vehicle for elevation. And you with your children or your wife. Could be the same thing. Could be the same. Could be the same thing. You know, it could be. The, it could be a very similar thing that you're using the table as a meeting place of connection, and the table becomes very important. I mean, join you keep on speaking, or is this enough? No, I'm just, just confirming. I'm just confirming with you that. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if it does have a mitzvah with a shalom bites or right. whether it's. Uh, Ideally, again, it's a process. It's a process. I'm not saying that that's where we are today. That's where I am today. Certainly not. It's a process. I've been experimenting with it, quite honestly. Uh, recently, we had a uh, barbecue for our afternoon program, and I didn't eat to chest it out. And it was fascinating what happened when I didn't eat. I looked at people eating, and they looked in my eyes like barbarians. <laughs> they looked like, I said, like, I don't know how they can do that in public, that you're so embarrassing, because it was chicken wings, right? Chicken wings, like, you've got to attack those babies. So I thought to myself, wow, this is like, how can anyone do this in public? Which, of course, is the ironic twist of, of trying to work on yourself. So, like, I got out of, like, becoming, succumbing to my analytic desire by becoming arrogant. <laughs> <sighs> I'm not like those pitiful creatures. <laughs> I am great. I am marvelous. I am elevated. So it's a tricky thing. Like, how do you remain humble? And then next, okay, yeah. In, but the truth is, when I think, yeah, that's me. I just like I was playing around with an experiment. It's amazing. Like, it, just do this. Go to a place and don't eat, and just watch people eating. Think, is that your best self? Especially the way, the, the way personally that that I'm trying to stop myself from eating. I'm trying to stop from eating where we're just, I just, I just kind of seafood. It's like almost like a, a honing device. One of these like heat-seeking missiles. I'm a food-seeking missile. And there you stand in my way. So that's, that's something to, to grow beyond, slowly, incrementally, as a spiritual adventurer.
Okay, good. So we have taken a couple of questions from two people and only two people, so we've stopped taking questions from them. Is there anyone else that would like to ask a question before we, we draw close to the ceremony? How about you, Tomer? Um, so when you hear about Gedolim uh, eating like only boiled potatoes in a small piece of bread, right? Yeah. Um, do you think that's because they're so in touch with the food that that gives them... It's like to them the taste of a uh, boiled potato is the same as like a salmon steak, but here they're trying to detach from. I mean, you, you have to you have to be a little bit. That, that's quite food. a generic statement. There are people that do this kind of thing with these kind of foods. Okay, good for them. You, you have to really kind of work with it. It's very, it is very specific. In other words, we're eating potatoes and dry bread because if you lived in Eastern Europe about 150 years ago, that was pretty much all you could afford. It wasn't like people saying, "You know, I'm going to do. I could have had the steak, but I'm going to go for the dry bread and potatoes." No, 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 no steak. Like you saw meat three times a year, if you are lucky. Um, John said, "Why is it? Why is it a, a, an Eastern European delicacy to have pachar? Then, if you've ever been exposed to the torment of pachar, pachar is cow foot jelly. Uh, sounds delicious, oh, yeah. doesn't? It? You basically take the hooves of a cow and you boil them in water, and it creates this jelly. Now, why would anyone eat that? The answer is because that's all you could afford." <laughs> Problem is, like now people like to live on it. Okay, that's a separate issue about you know social. Con- but you understand, carfoot jelly is a proof that you didn't really have the best selection of meats. Like it's not even the carfoot itself. Oh, I dream of eating hoof. You eat the jelly that's produced by the hoof. You, you like it? Uh, okay. Okay, so that's so that's something to to, to you know that's that's a really totally utterly irrelevant question. Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, so I think we're going to we're going to kind of put an end to this to this. To, to, I think I think we've done we've done well. I feel that we've we've really kind of engaged in the in in the topic of vulnerability. We explored some of it. There's enormously more to explore as it always is. But I think that will end uh, this series, and in, you know we'll try we'll try delve into something else. Um, in the following series. Thank you so much for your attention and participation.